good morning. If you would please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be considering verses 19 through 25. 19 through 25. And as you're, you're turning there, um, I just want to make mention that the author of Hebrews has been spending the first ten and a half chapters really declaring for us or, or setting forth for us this glorious reality, this, this reality that we have in the person and work of Christ. And it's here in this chapter that he makes a switch. Um, and that's, that's noted by that word, therefore, we'll see in chapter or in verse 19, um, where he is he's calling us to now apply these great truths that we have learned. And that is my hope today as we we open up the word. So again, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us go now to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious, almighty God and heavenly Father, Lord, we are truly thankful that we can be gathered here this morning to gather as your people your church, to commune and fellowship with one another, but to, to worship with one another, to sing praises to you through the Psalms, to pray together and to come together as we, we seek you, Lord, to hear your word read and now to, to have it opened up before us, Lord, we are so grateful and thankful for what you have done for us and given us. Lord, we're also thankful, as we'll, we'll see through your word, that you have called us together also to, to stir one another up, to pray for one another, to love one another, to exhort and to build up. Lord, so we do ask now that as, as we, we hear your word preached, Lord, that you would give us eyes and ears. Lord, as for me, you would help me to stand behind your son and declare, and to declare his truth. To speak of the glorious and wondrous things that are contained in your word and not the things which I would have to say. Lord, we ask this in Christ's precious and matchless name. Well, dear congregation, over the past few weeks, we've been considering the early church in Acts. And we have seen in the book of Acts these extraordinary works of God in his church through in his church and through individual believers. 
And the thing that has been most striking to me as, as we've gone through this is to see the peace and confidence with which the people of God have and how they respond to these various situations. There are two that really stand in the forefront uh, of, of these sermons and, in, and of the book of Acts, and that is Stephen and Peter. And it makes me wonder and consider how do they have such a peace? I mean, we see Stephen, we see Stephen as he's about to be stoned, he's drug out of the city by an angry mob. And it's at this moment that, that Stephen gazes into heaven to see the glory of God and to see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What peace must he have felt? What overwhelming peace could he have had? Another one that's very striking to me is, is Peter. Uh, when we heard of, of the martyrdom of James a few weeks ago and, and Peter's arrest, it struck me, as I, as I spoke to many people, it struck them of how Peter would just be sleeping. I mean, James had just died. He was killed by Herod. And Herod sent out and he arrested Peter. And so Peter could only expect that he was to be next, that his life was to be taken from him by Herod. And where do we find Peter in this text? We find Peter sleeping. He's sleeping. He's chained to two guards and he's sleeping. And what's amazing to me is that an angel shows up and, and, and shows up with this bright light, and that bright light ain't enough to wake up Peter. No, he has to prod Peter. He has to prod Peter. Shove him, push him, wake up Peter. What peace must Peter must have felt and had? And how did he get this peace? What was it that, that comforted Peter in this moment? Well, if we, we, as we considered in that text, uh, or in that sermon that day, it was, it was Peter's faith. Peter, and for Stephen, it was their faith in the promises of God. It was the, the glorious realities that those promises contained. They knew the one in whom they have believed, and, and they knew that he who had promised was faithful, that God was uh, faithful to preserve them to the end, to deliver them. And as we, we come to the book of Hebrews today and the, the, the text that we will be opening up, we see that the author has been exhorting his readers not to draw back. He's, he's exhorting them to stand firm in the faith and in the midst of the trials that they are, are enduring. And he does this by setting forth the supremacy of Christ over all things and the fullness of God's redemption in him as the mediator of the new covenant and as his great high priest. The author sets forth the glorious reality of the person and work of Christ to strengthen his hearer's faith. And that's the, the theme that I want to consider this morning. I want us to consider these glorious realities and then our responsibilities to them. Whereas I have written down in the, the handout our, our responsibilities to the glorious reality. And I want to look at this theme under two particulars. And the first of that is the, the, the glorious reality itself. What is this glorious reality? What is this, this thing that we have? And then secondly, I want to look at our responsibilities to that glorious reality. 
So our glorious reality, number one, and our responsibilities. Well, first, the glorious reality. Look again with me at verses 19 through 21. The author of Hebrews, as I've mentioned as we were turning here, has spent the, the previous chapters setting forth the beauty and the majesty and brilliance of Christ. He's, he's set forth his person and his work, his office of high priest. And it's now that he turns here in verses 19 through 21, and he gives us a summary of all the things that he has said before. And he's doing this to remind the Hebrews and us to not turn away from this glorious reality. We read, starting in verse 19, Therefore, having confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This language that is used here is meant to cause us to call our minds back to the old covenant forms of worship and set them in contrast to the new. These were all types and shadows of what, of these were all shy, I can't even talk. These types and shadows were there to point you to the greater reality that you have fulfilled in Christ. As we see in the text here, Christ has entered into the holy places. That is, Christ as our high priest has entered into the presence of God. If you remember in the Old Testament form of worship, the, there was the, the veil that separated the holy, the, the, I'm losing my thoughts now. There was, there was a veil that separated the, the priest and the people from the holiest of God. So we had that veil in the Old Testament. And Christ has entered in there for us. It was a type and a shadow that pointed us to this true fulfillment we have in Christ. Christ has entered into that holy place. Our high priest has entered into the presence of God. In our, our worship, in our call to worship this morning, we were reminded that Christ had sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter 4, 14 of this book, we see that Christ has passed through the heavens. Or in chapter 8, verse 1, that we see the, the same phrase as, as chapter 1, that Christ again is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. And again in chapter, 19, or chapter 9, verse 12, that he has entered once for all into the holy places. And again, verse 24 of 9, he has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. You see, Christ has entered into the presence of God for us and on our behalf. He's entered there to appear for us. Christ is in the holy places, and he's provided access for you to draw near to God through him. See, we need not the offerings of, of sacrifices or the continual mediation of priests who alone were the ones that had that access. To the Holy of Holies. No, we only need access through Jesus, who entered once for us, once for all, into this holy place. And he did not do so by the means of, of blood, the blood of goats or of calves, but he did so by his own blood. As our text tells us here, that, he, that we have confidence to enter in through the blood of Christ. We have confidence to enter into that holy places by the blood of Christ. 
It's by his blood. It's by his death on the cross, his sacrifice for sins, that we have access into this presence. It's only through him. In John 14, 6, which we will hear more on this evening, Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And this is important to note because there are so many We have the folly of Rome that would say we need to go through the mediation of priests to get to Christ. Or there are so many in this world that still believe that somehow they will be able to enter into the presence of God by their own works or by means of their goodness or morals. But that's not what the text is declaring to us. It's not what Jesus declared to us. We enter into the holiest places only by the blood of Jesus. It's only through Christ It's only by his blood, and it's by this new and living way. And that new and living way, that is to say, by this new being contrary to the old. Again, Christ has has fulfilled all of those Old Testament types and shadows. We no longer need anyone else, no other mediator, only Christ and his sacrifice. And this this new way is also a life-giving way a living way. It's life-giving. It provides us with, with life. It raises us from the dead and draws us in and close to Christ. And he's opened it up through the curtain or the veil. And the text here says that's his flesh. Again, the veil distanced the people from God. The veil distanced us from God. But it has been removed by the suffering and death of Christ. Just as the veil in the temple was torn to open the way to the most holy, so Christ's body was torn for us, so that his blood might be shed to open up the veil, open up this heavenly sanctuary. Christ has entered into the presence of God by the shedding of his blood, that as your high priest, you might enter in through him, that you would have access through him that you would be able to draw near to God by and through him. And it's important that we establish this reality, this glorious reality, because it's by this that we have confidence. We have confidence to go to God or to draw near to God or enter into this presence. We have confidence. That is to say that we have the freeness of access into, as well as the assurance of Christ to draw near to the signified reality. You can think of it this way. It's like having a ticket that will get you into anywhere. But it's far greater than that because what we have is Christ. Just as a ticket allows us to get into so many things like movies or like uh, carnivals, fairs, it provides us access. And that analogy falls way short when compared to Christ and what we have in him. It falls way short when we consider that through Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, through being united to him, that we have access, free and continual access into the holy places of God. And I love this because we need not have doubts or apprehensions. We, we, we need not to, to worry about whatever might come our way, whatever life may throw at you, because we have a great high priest over the house of God. I, I'm mindful just as of today and, and I've heard of, of just the sufferings of, of members of our congregation. 
and what they're going through in their life. But the thing that stands sure for them as it does for us is Christ. It's Christ. We need not doubt. We need not doubt. We have confidence because of Christ, not because of ourselves, not because of our works, but because of him. Because of what he has done and what he has promised. This confidence, again, is not in yourself, but it's in the excellency of the person and work of Christ. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the high priest of his people. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us now go on to consider, second, our responsibilities. Our responsibilities. I know I was brief in my first point, but what I want us to see is as we come here each week to hear the word of God, and it's not just to gain knowledge. It's not just to, to have this truth set before us as something to just ponder. No, we're called to believe and to obey and to apply the text. And that's what the, what the author is, is doing for us here. The application is actually given to us right here in the text. He first starts again by declaring that glorious reality to show them that because of this, therefore do this. He exhorts us and he does this by saying, let us, let us. So since we have that glorious reality, let us now respond by applying this glorious truth to our lives. The glorious thing about any doctrine or teaching is not only that it's true. That's essential and important. But what is, what is glorious about it is that we are to respond to this teaching through practice and worship. So as the author is exhorting us and saying, let us do this, he's wanting us to, to apply this truth to our life. And so for the next three or three ver or four verses, we're going to see this truth, that we are to respond to the word of God, that we are to take these teachings and these glorious realities and apply them to our heart and let, them, let that affect our practice in worship. So the author moves from that reality to now to declare us or exhort us to draw near. The first one in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are to, to draw near. This is warm and endearing language. Kids, you might best be able to think about this, that when, when you're away from your parents for a season or your grandparents for a season and you're able to, to come back into their presence, the first thing you want to do is you want to draw near to them. You want to embrace and hug them. You want to pull them close to you. It's a great way for all of us to look at it. When our, we're away from our loved ones or away from our friends for a while, we have a strong desire to draw near, to become close. Again, it's very endearing language. And it's in the same way that we should think of our relationship to the Lord. It's the same way we are to draw near to him. We are to come to him and embrace him in his word and through prayer. 
This is important because we can't belong to Christ at a distance. You cannot belong to Christ at a distance. It will not sustain. The author is not talking about a mere confession or, or a, a knowledge of the truth. Rather, he's talking about a daily, continual embracing and drawing near to God. We are to draw near to the Lord. And how are we to do this? The text tells us, it says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This true heart in the text, uh, this true heart we see is, is it, the text states how we are to get it. It says it's a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience in a body that is washed with pure water. This is a heart that has its identity, that, is, uh, that has been identified with Christ, has been united with Christ. This is a heart that has been cleansed from the filth of sin and unbelief. It's a heart that's been washed in preparation for that approach to God. So we're to have a, a, a pure heart we're to, or a, a, a clean heart, a, a heart that's been sprinkled and washed so that we may draw near. But we're also to do this with a, a full assurance of faith, a full assurance of faith. Now this assurance is, is not speaking here of our assurance of salvation. Rather, it's speaking of our assurance of or confidence in the work of Christ. Going back to that glorious reality, we have to be fully persuaded that what Christ has done is true, that he's done it. To draw near to God, we must be assured that, he, what, that Christ has accomplished in his life, death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins and access of communion with God. We have to be assured that Christ is our high priest, that he has shed his blood. There is no assurance of drawing near if there is no confidence in the person and work of Christ. If you do not know Christ, there is no access. There's no drawing near to God. That is why it is so important for us or for you to, to know what it is that he has accomplished. You must diligently attend the word. You have to uh, diligently attend the preaching of the word. Diligently attend, especially you young ones, family worship. Draw near to God. Draw near. Come close. Secondly, uh, we are in verse 23. We're, we're also... We have the responsibility of holding fast to our confession. The author says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We must hold fast to our confession. The beauty of, of, of God's providence this morning is we saw Hadley and, and Layla come up here and profess their faith before all of us. They made a confession to believe those they professed those truths and they made a confession of the hope that they had in Christ Jesus and just as they did that we are to do the same thing we must hold fast to that we must hold fast and that has the idea of, of gripping tightly I want you to think of a rock climber hanging on to a rock they're hanging on for dear life they're holding fast to that rock I think of uh, little kids when they learn how to ride a bike, when you see them, they're holding tight to those handlebars and they're not letting go. 
holding on for dear life. And that is how we are to hold on to Christ. That is how we are to hold to our confession. We are to do so without wavering. Without wavering. This is to be dedicated and committed to the Lord in all things. And, and I want to I want to say this, especially to a lot of our, our young men and women. We have seen around us in, in the world today, we, we, we've even seen in our own country, this growing tension and, 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 and slight persecution of the church. And, and the text here is saying, hold fast to that confession of hope without wavering. Be dedicated in all of your lives to what the Lord has, has committed to you. Be dedicated and committed to the Lord in all those things. We have many examples of this. And as, as I think of persecution arising, we, we can look back to Acts. We can see Peter. We can see Stephen. What did they do? They held fast to that confession of hope. They gripped it tightly. They hung on for dear life. We have many martyrs in the early church who suffered and died for their faith. We saw the reformers suffering under, under the persecution of Rome. And for us in, in this denomination that, that, that have the, the heritage of our forefathers, we have the covenanters. We have these men who were persecuted by the king of England. These men were, were thrown out of their churches. They were forced to worship in open fields and they had to hide for the sake of their lives. And many of them lost their lives, but they did so to proclaim Christ and to stand firm on these glorious realities. That was their hope. That was their hope. They held fast to this confession. That's what brought them through, or that's what brought them to death and, 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 and continued to, to preach the gospel even on the midst of flames or of, of hangings. They held fast. They gripped so tightly to that confession and they did not waver. They committed their entire life to the Lord. And what was their motivation for doing so? Again, the text tells us, for he who is promised is faithful. He who is promised is faithful. These men such as Peter, Stephen, the Reformers, the early church, the Covenanters, they did not do so because of themselves. They did not do so by anything in and of themselves. Uh, they, they, did, they weren't motivated by, by their knowledge. They weren't motivated by uh, other people surrounding them. They were motivated by the promises of God. They knew that, that God cannot lie, that he faithful who promised so we must hold fast to this confession we must hold fast to these realities that Christ has entered into and provided access for us that he has saved us by his blood that he has declared to us everything we need for life and godliness in this word this is the confession of our hope it's Christ our high priest
God is faithful, and he will be faithful to all that he has promised, all that he has promised. And this helps us as we move into verses 24 and 25. As we hold fast to our confession, as as we do this without wavering, this teaches us to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The author here exhorts us, and and in this exhortation, he's exhorting us to, to gather as the people of God, to be in fellowship and communion with one another. And what I love here is there's this organic relationship between all that we have considered so far. There's an organic relationship between the work of Christ and the individual salvation and the existence of the church, the corporate body. We, we see here that, that through this access, we have, we have confidence to draw near to God. And we have a confession of our hope that we can go and share and, and spur other people on to this good works. We need to... To, to provoke one another. This is why it's so important, and, and I, I, I love this here. I love what I get to see each and every morning when we, we walk into this building of all of us welcoming and warming, uh, especially to new people, but to each other. We're, we're seeking to know how each other's works or our weeks went, how work is going, how our families are going. And we do this because we want to to spur them on or we want to stir them up in love and good works we want them to know that we care for them we also want to be able to uh, help them as they they're working through these tough trials and tribulations in their life so so we're to we're to come here and we're to, to be motivated to do that to stir one another up to stir one another up and how do we do this how do we do this? We do it by our prayers. We can pray for one another. We can attend prayer meetings and, and, and pray for, for our congregation and for other congregations. We can do this by teaching, by helping come along, alongside of, of what someone has read or the sermon that they just heard. But most importantly, we can be an example. We can be an example for them in life. can be an example for them. We must heed the warning here that we must not neglect this assembly. We must not neglect the meeting together as it says is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day is drawing near. Your absence in the the worship of God or in, in the meetings of God's people is missed. It's needed. When you are gone, the part of the body is gone. We're to, to, to be here to, 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 again, build one another up. You have to consider this, that, that you have a place and a purpose in this church or in, if you're from another church, in that church. The body needs you. God is using you as a vessel of his grace to, to build up others and to exhort and admonish others. To, to, to help them in their pilgrim journey. So we must consider how to stir up one another. We must consider this. We must be active and diligent in this. 
as we have seen in these three responsibilities, we're, we're to draw near. We're to draw near to God through Christ. And we're to hold fast. We're to grip so tightly that the confession of our hope cannot be stripped away from us. And we're to consider one another. We're to, to love one another to build up one another. And we do so that we may ourselves grow in this Christian life. And may grow in this Christian life. Well, I, I mentioned as I began this peace. I mentioned this, this peace that, that Peter had, that Stephen had that the early church in the book of Acts had. It's so important to realize that the reason that they had this peace is because they knew the one, they, they knew Christ. They had this glorious reality set before them and they grabbed hold of it. They drew near to it. And they also taught and and. and and stirred up others into this truth and this good work. And I know for us it's hard. It's hard sometimes to wonder what's, what's going on in my life. You, you just don't understand. You don't understand the things that I'm going through, the financial problems that I'm having, the problems I'm having at work, the sins that I'm committing. You understand not of this, so it's hard for me to grasp hold of this reality, and it's hard for me to draw near, and it's hard for me to have this confession of hope that you're speaking of. And it's hard for me to go to a church where I, I feel like so much of me, so much of me is wrong. How can I help another person? How can I stir them up? Well, there's one person that I want to consider in closing that I think will help us in this. Consider David. Consider King David. King David is, is by far one of my favorite, but one of the greatest examples we have in Scripture of a man who, who not only was a man after God's own heart, but a man who endured so much struggle, trials, and hardships. I mean, we need only think that how he was... He was pushed away from the people of God because he was sought out after by Saul. Saul sought his life, and so, so David was forced into exile. We can look at that in David's life. We can look at that and say, man, my trials probably aren't, aren't in the same way, but David is there to give us hope. But there's one particular story that I think will be helpful. And it comes in 2 Samuel 12. If you're familiar, David has just committed this heinous and grievous sin. As I mentioned earlier, so many times we, we look at our sin as something that just hinders us from going to God, drawing near to him. But we have David as an example. David committed this heinous sin, the sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery, and not only he didn't stop there, he, he continued on to go on and have Uriah murdered. And he tried to conceal this, and he tried to, to keep this 
from the people and to keep this from God, but God would not let it be concealed. And so we have the story of Nathan coming to David. He declares to him that parable of the man who takes the other man's sheep, and he declares David to be that man. And he also says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. But he also says that the, the child that David would have would die. And it's in this part of the story that I, I, I really think is, is helpful to us because David afflicted this child that Uriah's wife bore to David and that child became sick, but and so David is seeking God. David is pouring his heart out. He's, he's drawing himself to God. He's fasting, and he, he's going in, and he's laying on the, the ground all night. David is suffering, but he's still going to God. He's going to God on behalf of this child, even though that child is suffering because of what David had done. But as the story unfolds and as the text moves on, we see that on the seventh day, the child died. And it says, the text says, that the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do some harm. Note this, when David saw that the servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And this is where we see David. He arises from the earth, he washes and anoints himself, and he changes his clothes. And he goes into the house of God and he worships. He worships. And then again, his servants come to him, and he says, What is this thing you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. Catch this, because I've missed it so many times. David says, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. What's striking about this story and what's striking about that text is David knew not only that God had promised, as he has promised to take care of his covenant children, that that child would be in the presence of the Lord, but David also knew with confidence, even after the sin that he had committed with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, the deceiving of his kingdom, and the forfeiting of his duties on the crown, that even though that, God would be merciful to him. That God would be merciful to David, that David would go to see that child one day. He would be with that child in the presence of the Lord. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. What faith David had. What faith in the glorious realities of Christ, his high priest. What faith that, that David knew that he would enter into the holiest places with the Lord and through the Lord and by his blood. What faith David had. 
David knew that even in the midst of trials and struggles, that he was called to draw near to God with, his, with a true heart and with, with the full assurance of his faith and confidence in God's promise, knowing that his sins had been put away from him and that God would accept his worship. David held fast to the confession of his hope. He held fast to the confession of our hope, of his hope. And beloved, we're, we're called to do the same. We're called to do the same. We must daily be in the word of God. We must daily consider Christ. We must be in his word. We must receive and hear from him. That by doing so, that we may enter into that holy place. That we may draw near to him. And that when trials come our ways, our confession of hope will stand. It will not waver. And again, we must be in the church. We cannot neglect the assembling of one of. of of each other. The assembly of the saints. You have a purpose here in this church and in God's kingdom and in your communities to be a light and an example. To to be there to, to proclaim these excellencies and these great truths that we have here in the word of God. Let us now pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so very thankful that even now as we gather together, we, we know that we have access into the throne room of your grace. We have access into the holiest places by your Son. It is that we have been washed by his blood we can be confident and assured of what you have done for us. Lord, help us. Lord, help us not only to to have knowledge of your word or to have knowledge of your son, of who he is and of what he's done, but to apply that work to our lives. That we would apply the work of salvation And that that through that application, we would also be lights and examples to the others around us. Let us be bold. Let us be bold to proclaim your son. To come to him each and every day. To seek from him and to, to receive from him all that we need. Lord, we ask that you would help us to apply this text, that we would be diligent in your word. We ask all of this in Christ's precious and matchless name. Amen.